So sober coaches, these are the men and women on the front lines of addiction. They're the people that I call when I have a mess that I just can't clean up. They will accompany a client to an AA meeting. They'll help them find a sponsor. They'll help them hike up a hill. They'll teach people to take care of themselves. I've heard of sober coaches teaching people how to cook. They'll sit next to you on a plane and make sure you don't drink. They're just on the front lines of addiction and they're really incredible people. They also are the liaison between doctors and treatment centers, the family members, therapists, doctors, the whole nine yards. They're just the glue that can really hold treatment together. It's a mystery to me why their profession is not covered by insurance, that people don't know what they are. And so I just felt that it was my duty, really, as somebody in the addiction field, as a therapist in the addiction, to put this on loudspeaker and let everybody know that sober coaches are really, really incredible. So today, we're talking to Brad Waldo and Danny, and these are guys that have been in the recovery mix for years, and I trust them both completely. If you're a therapist and you're listening and you have a patient who's struggling with addiction, give one of these guys a call. I am telling you they will make they will make your job a hundred thousand times easier i just can't say enough about about sober coaches the men and women who do this work are just absolutely incredible so thank you for listening my name is benjamin russick and this is my podcast look just tell me what to do all right so i am here with brad waldo and danny brad who are you guys and what do you do I'm the owner and founder of Brad Waldo Consulting, which is a case management intervention and sober coaching company okay. here in the Bay Area. Okay. And Danny, what do you do? I coach. Uh, I coach with Brad and I've been sober guy for a while now. Okay. And yeah. Brad, tell me what your company does. We work mainly with adolescents, young adults, and adults under 40. We see clients, particularly with uh, moderate to severe substance use, uh, extremely exceptional in some area. They're mm-hmm. uh, an athlete, musician, an artist, mm-hmm. you know, have over 4.0, and then they have this huge rock in their shoe of debilitating depression, debilitating anxiety, and debilitating substance use. You're like my cleaners. Like you're the cleaners. <laughs> so you're the people that I call when I have a mess that I can't clean up. When I have a patient who is gone off the rails, who needs to get into treatment, who can't stop drinking, who's holed up in a hotel room somewhere, or a parent whose teenager is wildly out of control, cutting and doing other self-harm and doing lots of drugs, basically you guys show up with your de-escalation tools and your vans, I suppose, (laughs) and you help transport people to treatment. You will be someone's companion for days or weeks or sometimes months, making sure that they stay on the straight and narrow. You'll help people get to AA meetings and all that good stuff. You're the front line. Would you say that's true? Yeah, that's really accurate. It's all relational. The clinical work, the medical work is being done by other people. Mm -hmm. And then we fill in all the gaps between those appointments. I kind of see you guys as really one of the most necessary parts of treatment because I I feel like there's a lot of treatment centers. People go in, they go into inpatient for a month and they come out and everyone expects them to be fixed like a car that's taken into the shop. Any rehab that is any good will have a list of gentlemen and gentlewomen like you on call to say, hey, I think you should work with Brad or I think you should work with Sarah and they're going to help you get to outpatient treatment center. These guys are nodding as I'm speaking, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. And they're going to they're gonna help you get to a meeting and they're going to help you stay on track. You do a lot of, I guess, aftercare as well, right? The most common is leaving treatment, usually four to two weeks before mm-hmm. someone's leaving. We get involved. We develop 
a relationship with that person leaving treatment. Alternatively, we're brought in often when someone's been to treatment one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, mm-hmm. and the person's already seen a therapist, the person's already seen a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Do they need to go back to residential mm-hmm. the eleventh time? Maybe not, right. but they need a lot more accountability. The parents need to step out of a professional role and step out of being the police and step out of being the mentor and outsource that to people that A, have been right where the client's at personally, understand the arc of treatment that they've been through and can bring in professional services as necessary. So I think one of the kind of counterintuitive things about sober coaching is and case management can be making sure that the aftercare plan working with the treatment center is not depersonalized. Does this person need to go to intensive outpatient? Do they need to go to partial hospitalization? Mm-hmm. My first case, actually, young man was up in Marin County in residential treatment, and he agreed to go to outpatient, completed the outpatient program as eight or 12 weeks, and he called me constantly, but he just was over therapy. He had done therapy for years and years and years, and he's like, this is not helpful right now. Right. The treatment center really strict about him getting a therapist outside of the intensive outpatient. After working with him and seeing his motivation to work the 12 steps, to be part of the community in AA, to Mm -hmm. go to outpatient and be part of the alumni group, it's like, okay, let's like let him work the steps and then come back to therapy in a year. Let him have a breather. He has plenty of support. And so ensuring that the client's motivation is as high as possible, that there's not too little or too much definitely reiterating to the treatment team, to the psychiatrist and therapist on site right. that, you know, he's extremely motivated. It's right. genuine. He, you know, is going to four or five, six meetings in a week. But were you accompanying him to those meetings? Yeah, often. Yeah. Maybe, maybe two or three a week. My, my question is so just so that people understand what was your direct involvement like day to day with this guy? Yeah. We would talk for five to 60 minutes a day, sometimes longer if necessary. Uh-huh. And that's not every client. Some clients thrive in person. We spend a lot of time together in person while in a session or go on a hike or, or go to meetings together, fellowship, or, you know, some people we spend 45 minutes, 50 minutes together in person. So how many hours a week would you say you spent either on the phone with him or in person with him? We typically spend seven hours a week in person and on the phone with clients, typically two in-person blocks Mm -hmm. for two hours a piece, and then three hours roughly split between the seven days a week. Additionally, we'd like to talk to loved ones at least an hour a week and, and typically two or three Mm -hmm. total. And then there's probably an hour, two hours with coordination of care with the client's therapist, psychiatrist. I see. Sober coaching is is sort of, in my opinion, insufficient. It's one part of a treatment team. Sure. It's part of having a clinical therapist, a psychiatrist, or residential treatment center. And would you do things like drive him to his appointments and stuff like that and really make sure he gets to the, make keeps his commitments? So some clients, yes, need that extra handholding, mm-hmm. you know, need, you know, really diligent kind of tracking of 12-step meeting attendance, mm-hmm. uh, meetings with clinical and medical providers, definitely taking clients to get drug tested and, you know, some life skills. We see a slightly less acute patient than other case management firms with tons of staff and mm-hmm. will be in person with a client up to 20 hours a week. Wow. So there's, it can vary. You, you do all the things that the therapists 
cannot do, refuse to do, that the doctors can't do. It's like all the gaps that you can even be, like you were saying earlier, if they don't want to do IOP, you can kind of be a substitute for like if someone leaves treatment, just, just for the definition, IOP is basically day camp. Inpatient is like you're there 24 seven for those who don't know. IOP is basically day camp. So you do three hours of group therapy, three to five days a week. And then you have a, or a therapist on site and you get uh, urinary drug testing, usually once or twice a week. It's called step-down treatment. You step down from inpatient to IOP, but there's all this space <laughs> that they suddenly have all this free time and you guys can fill in or they can not do IOP and they can hire a sober coach to to supplement the time between, say, AA meetings and stuff. Um, and it can be a real lifesaver, um, especially yeah. for somebody who really feels out of control. Yeah, I'm a kind of embarrassingly very big group fitness person. And I need someone to tell me what to do. When I have that hour to go work out, I need someone to just say, you know, we're going to do these exercises at mm -hmm. these intervals. Right. I'm going to pick the music. You do it. <laughs> right. And, and so it's very similar with the guys we work with where, hey, you know, we want to hear your goals on the outset, whether those are physical, mental, spiritual, and work within those guidelines, maybe mm -hmm. expand upon them and mm -hmm. push them further than they think is possible. But ultimately, day to day, it's, hey, dude, you said you wanted to right. experience this. You yeah. wanted to work out three days a week. It's Wednesday and you haven't worked out yet. Yeah. So we're going to go together. That's great. You're not right. going to go. And, and maybe that's a good example of showing up and, and doing something in person right. and utilizing that in in-person time together and it's not shaming but there is a, a certain amount of accountability yeah. and tough love of hey we're gonna do what you said you wanted to do right and you have support in doing that instead of it being like okay i wrote these goals and you know maybe my treatment center with 40 patients or 50 patients at an out, outpatient level of care right. is like checking in on and remembers mm -hmm. oh is he going to yoga like he said he wanted to right, right. yeah accountability is the word that like you said with the spaces that get created, it seems like there's this certain area that is seemingly out of reach from a therapist. And even from, you know, if a guy's in a 12 step program, mm -hmm. their sponsor is only going to go so far. They're not going to pursue this individual. So there, there tends to be this dark space that we get to see that not everyone gets that's to see. That's a good way of putting it. Like a yeah. dark space. Uh, yeah, it is like the dark space. That's yeah. a, I'm going to use that. Or thing, yeah, things they're not going to tell their sponsor, things they're not going to tell their therapist in a healthy way. Because the, the rapport that you guys build with these people must be powerful it is having yeah. spent so much time with them yeah and there's also less pressure for them too because we don't it's it's less of an authority component there is an accountability and a measure to that but it's not this idea of like a figure of authority is no, not as dominant you're also you do a lot of inviting like i invite you to do this right but mm. you like charlie encourage van, yeah, yeah encourage. Invite, like encourage. charlie van leuven he introduced shout me. out charlie shout van out van charlie he won't listen to, he won't listen to this um <laughs> but he actually taught me a lot early on in my career, the best thing he ever taught me was when somebody is hesitant about calling a therapist or calling for treatment, he'll say, let's get your phone right now. Here's your phone. Let's dial this number right now. We're dialing it together. Here we go. And they're like, what, what, what? Mm. And I do that yeah. as a therapist. I'm like, I'll make a, a patient pull out their phone and make a call that they really need to make. Yep. in the moment. I use that as a template for many things, like make an appointment, let's get online and schedule that glass blowing class that you've been wanting to do for so long. Mm -hmm. But I'll do it later. No, you won't. Yeah. You can do it now. Yeah. When so often physical 
exercise and and sort of engagement in that front is, is such a good venue for conversations about moving forward, challenging ourselves. For example, like a therapist will say, hey, like we're trying to take risks. We're trying to push beyond that level of comfort, Mm -hmm. that level of anxiety that someone's comfortable with. And so when we're on a hike, it's my job. If they want to do, you know, I say, hey, we're going to go on a two mile hike. Then we go on a four, five, six mile hike and we do some trail running. <laughs> yeah, wow. And we're running up a hill and we get to the top and they're like looking up, like, I don't want, I'm not going up there. I didn't agree to this. And it's like, oh, come on, let's just go. Come on, I'm going to do it with you. And we get to the top and they're like, oh my God, yeah. right. I did it. I'm capable. And so it's that in every arena. And that's why it's so important to have that clinical support too, to know these are the treatment goals that we're working on. These aren't mm-hmm. just like, completely made up or self-directed right. from the client. They're not just made up from me. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of we're the third leg of a stool, which is a clinical therapist, mm-hmm. a sponsor, and then we're the third. I also think of you guys as like a, I almost want to say like a basket. Like you hold the patient mm-hmm. and the therapist and the treatment and you have all the information, you know, the parents probably or the wife mm-hmm. or the husband or the whoever. Yeah, it's almost a liaison. You, yeah. you, you, but, it, but, but you're carrying, mm-hmm. it's not just liaison, you're mm-hmm. carrying it. Like you're the guys that carry Mm. everything. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that when I have a patient and I'm working with their sober coach, the case becomes 10,000 times easier because of folks like you. It's it's amazing. Um, And it's amazing to me that your profession is not more renowned and more well-known. I have had to explain. That's why I'm doing this episode because nobody knows. They don't know. Like a sober coach, what's that? Or a sober companion, what's that? A lot of you guys do the thing where you'll accompany somebody on an airplane to make sure they don't drink, yeah. right? Those are like the, the easy ones, right? <laughs> yeah. And I've done a bit of it myself before I was licensed. Odd jobs here and there. Uh, I didn't was, know that. Yeah, yeah, it was not easy. Right. It was not fucking easy. Yeah. I worked in I worked in an SLE, sober living house, which is similar in a way right. because you're sort of, you sleep there and you're kind of live there a little bit and mm-hmm. work there and you kind of do a bit of case management. So a mm-hmm. sober living house, for those who don't know, is like a, the old term would be like a halfway house for people who are, right. li- you, li- you live and work and breathe with other folks who are in the program. There's curfews and it's like a big I want to say almost part. like a fraternity or yeah or it's like a fraternity you know? everyone goes to meetings at a certain time and uh, it's a lot of drama and a lot of insanity but they they're good the whole step down of treatment is like someone goes into inpatient you know it costs you know a million dollars yeah <laughs> it's like, sure. like what is it seventy thousand dollars now for high-end treatment place for a month yeah 60 65 70 oh, for, for 30 days um, these are for the really nice places and for the ones that are kind of rustic it's like thirty thousand <laughs> you know the best thing in the world would be that, and then you go to IOP for six to eight weeks while living in a sober living house, while seeing your psychiatrist and your therapist on a regular basis, and having a sober coach who's mm-hmm. filling in the gaps, and also doing uh, like something like Soberling, which is in like an electronic accountability. It's like a device that you blow in and you send a photograph to your usually your sober coach who checks it and makes sure that you're makes. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, one of those things that start the car, like you have to breathalyze. Breathalyze it's like that kind of you know and and the whole process can take a year we're ideally a year-long engagement with a client we get hooked up with someone that's coming home from sober living from the east coast right and they have nine months of sobriety it might be nine months or six months we definitely want to celebrate that person's year anniversary with them that's an important milestone but as much as we're working on complacency with a client also the family the client starts to get some color back on them their skin's better 
they're answering the phone, mm-hmm. they're texting, they're, they're in a sober living, they have friends. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of complacency that a family can also experience, of, oh, they're better. And so that container and that basket for the family is just as important. And I think there's a, when I was nine months sober, I think my dad was like, why are you still going to AA meetings? <laughs> Let alone 11 years later at Thanksgiving when I'm yeah. home and I'm like, I'm going to a meeting like I'll see you guys later and just reiterating the importance of like peeling back the layers of the onion to the family and say, Hey, like we're working on risk taking or showing up or being softer, being more approachable or whatever. And it has everything to do with the recovery. This isn't like executive coaching by any means, but it has everything to do with this person being comfortable and joyous Mm -hmm. and having their feet under them in their own recovery that at month nine a year um, around the ninth step maybe in a 12-step program guys get real shaky and so to have that extra layer of support is really crucial it's amazing how much education you have to do for the families Um, i i definitely see addiction as not only an individual but a family disease oh huge yeah you know the family just wants the person fixed and they just want the problem to go away which is how they treated their kid which is why the kid was drinking probably in the first place to say hey cry for help yeah you know like Mm -hmm. okay you're done crying for help now now you can go back out into the world and suck yeah yeah education for the family and i find the same thing with therapists and doctors medical professionals isn't that amazing hospitals they're just no nothing in the handbook yeah here's a bottle of xanax yeah you know go home and kind of kind of blows me away breaks my heart a little bit when i ask because i'm friends in that field and they're just like nope not a part of it and they see it every day yeah what are some of the major challenges as a sober coach so i think the biggest challenge is if a client is fully reliant on the coach and the case management firm because it's just i should become obsolete we should become obsolete Um, this isn't like a long-term multi-year process at least with our clients i think with higher acuity clients it can be um, necessary for longer Mm -hmm. ideally someone has a sponsor a home group, all those things caked in to their social life mm-hmm. that parents are going to Allen on that mm-hmm. and and if not 12 step, that there's other replacements for yeah. those structures that they have a therapist, they have a psychiatrist, that they're yeah. going to those appointments and that it's no longer the coach isn't the one poking them to go do those things mm-hmm. nine months in. Can you uh, define a uh, home group? Oh, a home group is a AA meeting that someone attends weekly everyone at that meeting knows them it's their sort of uh, most frequent meeting that they attend okay sort of a non-negotiable meeting that you're at you're you're yeah. committing to some type of participation right. and what's alanon alanon's a 12-step group for family members of alcoholics mm-hmm. and then there's naranon which is alanon for narcotics anonymous for those of you those might understand like what what's the main message of alanon detach with love detach with love <laughs> no, I, I will, i'll just i'll spell it out um yeah it's, great. It's, it's basically that you in in aa and na the idea is that you can't control your addiction you are powerless to control your addiction and for alanon it's that you are powerless to control the addict You've got to keep your own side of the street clean and and stop using up all of your energy and time trying to control your son or daughter's addiction or your husband or wife's addiction or your loved one's addiction. That was way more eloquent than fuck you, clean up your own mess, which is usually what I get from the Alamans. So I will probably stop you guys periodically when you use a term because you've got to, I'll cut this, the, the amount of ignorance out there is profound. 
No, mm. it's great because you we'll lose keep people it. there keep too. Keep that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, so, uh, any other challenges, Danny? Do you have any challenges that you encounter? Yeah, I think, and Brad alluded to it, is when a family is resistant, or maybe there's some resistance to either working with us or something around the family or loved ones getting intimate with maybe the disease or what someone is dealing with. So maybe like we don't care, we don't want to know it's on them or this this idea that they should be fixed after a certain period of time some resistance there is is difficult because i know that that's going to come up for that individual Mm -hmm. anyway that's a bridge they're going to have to cross yeah and the complacency of the family like you said if this is a family disease if the drinking is centered around this family system Mm -hmm. that okay my 17 year old son is six months sober so i don't need to work on myself i don't need to go to therapy Mm -hmm. that's the biggest hurdle They've paid 70 grand for a month of treatment. Right. They're a, a C-level executive. They have four cars in the driveway. Why do I have to do any work? Mm, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Like yeah. he's better, we're better. Uh-huh. We'll keep paying you. That's fine. Keep yeah. an eye on him. But the intern, you know, there's no motivation for some of the family members to continue to do work after yeah. a certain amount of pain is dissipated. Yeah. It's really amazing to watch families transform because mm-hmm. someone gets in treatment. And the classic example. The, the word is uh, homeostasis. So homeostasis refers to a state of balance, even if the system's fucked up. So if you take one of those mobiles, you know, those wire sculpture things. Mm-hmm. The thing, and if you put an alcohol, if you put a beer bottle on one of the things and the whole system goes, <clears throat> right, let's say, you know, mom comes home wildly drunk every night and starts a fight with dad and or vice versa and they fight and all the whole time you know the daughter's up there cutting because she can't stand the screaming and yelling and the Mm -hmm. son uh sneaks out and he starts hanging out with his friends and no one's watching the freaking kids and the kids are losing their shit and then suddenly let's say mom stops drinking Mm -hmm. say mom or dad stops drinking then the fights downstairs stop and they start looking at the kids and all of a sudden the whole system it's like taking the bottle off the thing and the, the system goes the the, the, the little mm-hmm. tines go crazy yeah and every single time somebody gets sober the family system loses its mind <laughs> because suddenly people are setting healthy boundaries healthy like boundaries. yeah moms don't stop calling me every <laughs> 15 minutes or you start trying to mend fences with one of your siblings who and they don't like that or you switch jobs because the last job was toxic and that causes an upheaval and suddenly there's less money because dad can't work as a sommelier anymore i don't know <laughs> it causes immense destabilization when somebody yeah. gets well yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of resistance to people getting well in those ways. Mm-hmm. Systems do not like to change. Yeah, well, it illuminates some of your own stuff, right? Yeah. If someone in that family system starts to get well. Yeah. I've got a big history of that. In my you do? Yeah, highly, Mine too. highly qualified. I would just would add before we move on, the other thing to, to be frank and it's a little grim is the hard part of coaching is you get involved and you care about the people. You're invested in their wellness. And yeah people relapse and they die and worse Mm -hmm. right and that's really real there's a you know they talk about the fatal nature Mm -hmm. of the disease and it's really real so that that is what we're dealing with at the same time it's totally balanced by when you see someone recover it's it's a miracle yeah how does that feel it's like unreal it's otherworldly and you were there to see it yeah like against all odds when it wasn't supposed to happen what kind of things do you see when someone gets well what kind of changes you know the a long time ago what i used to see all the time was and less of it now i think maybe because of treatment centers and where people are going in detoxes i used to see people who we thought in meetings were wet-brained and they'd come in what is that wet-brained was you know in short it's they've drank beyond they've damaged their mind 
so thoroughly that we think that there's no return from that. They, act, not they, they basically right. act like somebody with dementia. Yes. Sometimes like they seem like they have dementia or sometimes like mild schizophrenia, especially mm-hmm. when mixed with methamphetamine, which mm-hmm. became extremely popular. Mm-hmm. And you see some of these people who you didn't write off, but you had an idea of how it was going to go for them. And you mm-hmm. see them like in AA, they talk about take up your bed and walk again. You mm-hmm. see these people learning how to read, wow. sitting in a meeting and grinding through a paragraph a wow. word at a time while the room mm-hmm. waits patiently. Wow. And then six months later, they they learned how to read by reading the big book. Wow. Like, you know, I could cry thinking about yeah. it. Dude. It's, a, it's, un, it's unreal. And, yeah. and in that moment, you know, it's nothing you did, right. but it's something that you participate you shepherd. in. You were a shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're in the river with them, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I could say it a lot of ways, but it's extremely humbling. Yeah, I think that's a big part of why we do it. Brad, what have you seen when you see people improve? Yeah, I think the uh, separation, you know, I think a lot of these sick family systems, especially, you know, in this like more affluent demographic that is, you know, going to more expensive treatment centers and looking for this type of service and kind of throwing money at the problem is focus on what really matters. So instead of thinking, oh, I I need to work 80 hours a week and and achieve materially, what really matters is it spending time with each other? Is Mm -hmm. it it taking care of our bodies? Is Mm -hmm. our relationships are really the most important thing. So let's craft our lives in a way that suits us. And I need to, it's almost like this blessing of, okay, I have my recovery, which if I don't have, I lose everything, or I try to choose my job. It, It makes the decision much easier because the stakes are so much higher. So someone that doesn't have crippling mental health issues or crippling substance use issues has a tougher time to like set aside their material goals, for example, or set aside that relationship that's troublesome. Whereas someone in recovery is like, well, I'm going to relapse and potentially like die die (laughs) from, from alcoholism or drug addiction if I don't attend to this so watching people make really tough decisions is yeah, pretty absolutely. rewarding yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible you know like you said some of the clinicians i work with are just blown away at the depth of the decision that people can be can make what kind of decisions have you seen people make <sighs> i mean 17 18 year old kids kind of being like okay like i'm never going back home it's really cool when you know it's a maybe a, a highly religious household and a young person is queer and they make a decision to go to sober living and go to a liberal arts school and you know kind of explore that area of their life and I'm thinking of one guy in particular who uh, spectacular music producer went to the south for school you know and his family were just religious fanatics and he was did not fit in with them Mm -hmm. and so his whole spirit and his and his recovery was threatened by you know his family's conceptions of what he was supposed to be and so to have his recovery then lead to this like complete freedom and independence you know his own spirit kind of blossoming is Mm -hmm. is you know unbelievable and Mm -hmm. that kid that after 10 days i was like i gotta get out of here (laughs) yeah i just got a, a note that you know he's maybe two years sober got the letter that he's going to college and you know he asked how i was doing there, there's like this amazing you know lack of self-centeredness that people can develop as a form of compassion mm-hmm. through a recovery process there's a, a magic that can develop for sure i see things like people's skin looks different mm-hmm. after like yeah. six weeks and six months and their teeth look different yeah mm-hmm. their hair looks different yeah they walk differently yeah they make eye contact. Their voice is different. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's just like who are what? Ha- what? Yeah. 
you yeah, know you won't recognize them won't. We've, we've had that where i've had periods of a year or more yeah. go by and then you'll see this person and they remember me and i can only recognize maybe their voice and their name yeah, and amazing. it's like they're they're different Mm-hmm. Yeah. they're cellularly different individuals i overuse this analogy but it bears repeating you know if, if you water a tree with gasoline especially on the weekends you know <laughs> and it's dark yeah. all the time it's not going to do so good but as soon as you give it light and water it's going to grow into the tree it was always supposed to grow into yeah mm-hmm. and uh there's they talk about an aa the was it the promise of sobriety or the promises there are a set of promises a set of promises mm-hmm. in alcoholics anonymous you know what i tell all of my patients Every single one of them that's in recovery, I say, you have one job. What's your one job? Uh, I have to go to work tomorrow. No. It's what's your one job? And like, oh, it's not drink. It's like, because everything everything good follows that. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't drink, everything good will follow. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. Having a bad day, uh, got in a fight with your spouse, uh, your kids are mad at you. What are you supposed to do? Well, work it out. No, 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 no. No. Uh, go to a therapist. No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, uh, go to a meeting. No. Yeah. You're supposed to not drink and you win. Yeah. <laughs> every mm-hmm. every situation yeah. you're yeah. a winner because you didn't drink. Yeah, uh, that's a, a huge challenge with families oftentimes is okay, they're out of treatment, they finished sober living, let's get a job and and go to school and and it's such sage advice to take a small bite of those things. Yeah. To yeah. work 10, 12, 15, 20 hours a week or take one or two classes when starting back up to protect their mental health. And, and I've seen it so many times this is the most common mistake that people can make is take a full course load of classes in college. In early recovery. In early recovery. Right. And early recovery is like the first six months, the first year, yeah. really. And, and taking on a 36 or 40 hour a week job, their attendance with me shrinks, their attendance with their therapist shrinks. They're too tired to go to their community, whether it's 12 step Mm -hmm. or otherwise in the evenings. The funny thing is there's financial limitations that some people have and that's not my clients. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My clients do not need to work they need to stay sober. You know, school, if someone's taken two semesters off to get well, to say, oh, I need to take four, five, six credits, classes at 20 units or something. Right. No, you don't. If you don't have your recovery, you have nothing else. Most of the time, they take one semester at a reduced caseload and they are at full capacity right. the very next semester. It's not a long process, but it's so important to, to have that transitional time. Mm-hmm keeping the priorities the priorities and reintegrating you know those parts of life that that are necessary and Mm -hmm. so you recommend about a year before people start really ramping up it varies a lot you know if someone goes to treatment for 60 days or 90 days i think doing the full iop program is really important and it's just a level of surrender (laughs) at some level showing up doing something and completing it is incredibly important Mm -hmm. to someone's sense of like setting out to accomplish something and doing it you know maybe after that you know 90 days in residential another say 90 days of iop so i think at about six months Mm -hmm. it would be appropriate to get a part-time job go to school yeah if if you want to wait longer if there's no need you know clients that have no you know need to work right away to to have some project some clients you know will get very into fitness or spirituality and to have that time in their first year to like really pursue that thing they want to protect Mm -hmm. that's the important part you know maybe six months or a year then your priorities are clear okay um i want to ask you guys about abstinent-based programs versus harm reduction and i'm going to define what those are so absent base means no mind altering substances whatsoever unless they're prescribed by a doctor 
it means no drinking, no drugs, no pot, <laughs> no pot, <laughs> no pot. I'm going to say that three times. Yeah. And uh, people, you know, they say, oh, I'm sober. I'm just, I'm smoking weed instead of drinking. And it's like, fuck you. And um, uh, harm reduction is kind of like I compare it to limited thermonuclear war. Or being a little bit pregnant, it's just it's just not realistic. It Sounds means like that I'm bias. yeah I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna yes highly I'm I'm gonna use you know meth on the weekends. Right. Um. You know there was this what I thought was a pretty damaging article that came out I think in the Times, the New Yorker about a guy who used heroin recreational. Sure. Yeah. And while I'm sure that's true for him, I can see a lot of folks reading that and going, Oh, I can do it. I can I can use yeah. heroin on the weekends. Yeah. I'll just use meth at parties. I knew a girl once who said I'm gonna have I'm gonna have champagne at my wedding and i'll have the non-alcoholic champagne it's like oh my god you know no, like half a fucking dry wedding what are you thinking you know what are your thoughts on absent base versus harm reduction i have a good I, th- I think this is actually maybe the most important thing i'll say all all sessions so far actually though i'm an abstinence-based guy yeah. i do aa yeah. i don't think smoking weed is sober and that you know certainly informs you know how we work with clients and, and self-disclosing and I've really softened over the last 10 years of working in treatment around medication-assisted therapy, harm reduction, which is I want a chance with a client. And if that means they're going to smoke weed for three years, but they'll be alive, that's my preference. And it's, I don't think it's because of abstinence-based approach, mm-hmm. but if anything prolongs someone that's suffering's life, whether depression, substance use, I have to support it because mm-hmm. they don't have a, sh- a chance if they're dead. So w- your position is that if somebody is, say, not drinking, but they're using marijuana, um, you support that because it keeps them from drinking? Or what's the, the thinking there? If there's an authentic willingness to change and motivation to change, mm-hmm. and that's part of their process, that that should be supported there's a, a struggle too because the people around that person can have their own boundaries. Mm-hmm. So it's just as important for a family member or a parent to go, hey, like I'm not okay with you smoking weed in mm-hmm. the home. You can do that and I support you, but you can't live here. You need to find some roommates. Mm-hmm. You need to get a little job. You right. need to pay your own rent. Sure. And that boundary is as important than that person's journey to right. recovery. If someone's engaged in Mm -hmm. Uh, the therapeutic process with a clinician, with a psychiatrist, with a community that's helpful with their wellness, Mm -hmm. then the harm reduction is is really beautiful. But often it's not that way. Often it's like, you know, the whole person's life is continuing to fall apart and they're holding on to the last thing that gives them comfort. Just so I'm clear, the larger category is the category of cross addiction, where somebody will stop drinking, but they'll start picking up marijuana and smoking it all day, every day. And mm-hmm. then that will eventually lead them back into drinking or back into other drugs and all their other behavior that is bad for them. And you're saying that there's a smaller subset of folks who stop drinking and who continue to smoke something like marijuana in small amounts, and that keeps them sane enough to not drink. And that does exist. I, you see it far less often, but right. I have to imagine it exists. And and those aren't the clients we see, especially because a lot of them are coming out of residential treatment and have met medical necessity for that level of care. But I have to give people the benefit of the doubt that it does exist. Have you seen making. it? Because I've never seen that. I've never seen somebody stop drinking and stop all the drugs and smoke weed and succeed. Like I, I in my career, I have not seen that. 
um and you have no but 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 i have a, a very distinct cross-section of people i've worked with that have been hospitalized mm -hmm. that have used hard drugs so i just i don't feel confident in you know saying that it doesn't exist outside of that okay extreme near-death <laughs> clientele right um, that we typically see and so what you're saying is i've seen so many hardcore drug users that it's like they're not using heroin they're not doing meth and if someone is smoking weed and surviving and not doing meth and heroin then you know god bless it does that encapsulate kind of your position on that yeah okay yeah i want that person alive a big example of that is like the use of suboxone i also want to say for the record uh, suboxone is an opiate itself mm -hmm. i believe and it, the idea is that it you take it blocks the like opiate receptors in your brain or it fills them up so that if you take opiates you don't get high is the idea and i believe that things like vivitrol and naltrexone do a similar thing with alcohol but i'm not quite sure how it works um, there's a lot of controversy in the AA community they say you know if you a lot of a really hardcore AA folks will say well if you're on suboxone you're not sober which i think is preposterous from my limited understanding the death rates plummet when properly prescribed mm -hmm. right With, without suboxone or without subutex or without you know these opiate medications mm -hmm. um, that have become popular more people have a chance to survive than when not taking them and sort of facing the world unmedicated okay i would say also that that that's regulated by the doctor whereas pot mm -hmm. somebody can just smoke all day every day you know, and it's there to, they can self-medicate themselves into, into, you know, into a fog. But as you say, it's better than using heroin. And I can't disagree with that. With our clientele too, you know, they've been to the best treatment centers. Mm -hmm. They've been to the best therapists. They've been in therapy since they were a child. There's nothing someone can say that's wrong. Mm -hmm. If someone's ready, you can't screw it up for someone that's ready. And you can't say anything right for the person that's not ready. And so that person that needs to discover that they're also powerless, mm -hmm over pot needs to have that experience fair enough and that like you know clamping down and, and having all eyes on them and mm -hmm. you know oh you're still not sober i don't know what good that does it's a tough question you know you said you've never seen someone continue to just smoke weed and succeed and i think i have if you change the definition of success <laughs> like if okay. if it's if fair not if not it. dying is success in one's book, then I have seen that work, but I wouldn't trade that individual for what I have. I think success in my feel is somebody who grows and thrives as a human being yeah. and is able to make good, strong choices for themselves and for the people around them that they love. Yeah. I personally dislike marijuana a lot. <laughs> it is something very insidious about it. Folks will smoke it and smoke it casually, and sometimes they'll be fine for a long time. Yeah. You've heard about the relapses where somebody will have, you know, a couple of years of sobriety and they'll decide, oh, I can drink. And they'll drink successfully for six, nine, 10, 12 months. Sometimes, Absolutely. And they'll be completely fine. Like, oh, I've got this. Absolutely. And then bam. Yep. Right. Now with pot, it's like a longer runway. But mm -hmm. I personally feel, and I cannot prove, that it's a kind of the same deal that there's there's something about it that just starts to take over and and now that it's legal everywhere and i just i'm i'm, I'm super seeing, socially acceptable i'm seeing people yeah. i'm seeing all the teenagers are smoking yeah. it and they're vaping it and everyone's yeah. stoned out of their gourds and i just i don't like it yeah but. you know brad was talking about this length of time before you go back to you know a 40 hour a week job there is something that happens to where the water has to get sort of still for some of the things that are going on to come up and that's why it's so important for mm -hmm. one of the legs of that stool to be a therapist because that stuff can come up but you can't get an assessment of what's going on and i can't get an assessment of my own life 
if I'm intoxicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff is not going to come up if I rush right back into the world of work or whatever. I found mm-hmm. that absolutely true with anyone that's continuing to smoke marijuana. Mm-hmm. There's still this one thing blocking whatever needs to come up and yeah. say that however you want to say it, yeah. but it mm-hmm. doesn't let us get to the real, you know, they say that alcohol is a symptom. The yeah. bottle was a symbol, yeah, right? Sure. So it doesn't let us get to the what yeah. some of these real causes are. Uh, before we get to your personal stories and your personal stuff, let's talk a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous. I am a huge fan. I think that the two things that Western civilization has done perfectly are public libraries and Alcoholics Anonymous. I think they're fantastic. Nice. I have seen AA help so many people. I used to be very against organized religion and organized stuff, and I'm not saying AA is a religion, but I remember walking into my first meeting with a friend of mine. It was in Marin, and it was this huge room. There was like 300 people in it, and everybody was on the same energy thing. Mm. And they, Tuesdays. Was it Tuesday? Was it was, was it a, a celebration for anniversaries and birthdays? It was is that what I, I mean? Yeah. It was really oh, it's big. amazing. It's an amazing meeting and room. And I yeah. was floored. Like all yeah. this shit the I've ever been crazy. told about a like just completely evaporated in like five <laughs> seconds. I walked in because I'm I'm very I'm very sensitive to energy, yeah. and I'm like I walked in. I'm like holy shit. Yeah, this is what people are complaining about. Yeah, are they out of their minds? Yeah, this is that, amazing. Yeah, that's an exemplary meeting for sure yeah but still you know i love the fact that it, that you have to acknowledge something that's greater really deeper i, I say that's not just a higher power but a deeper power something that was in, that's within you and however mm-hmm. you want to phrase it i love the progressivism of the big book and how they were even back there their, their big book is all about hey do it your way and figure this out and and they were struggling with the language back then they were basically struggling with christianity uh, and and doctrine and like and 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 saying well this is how you need to do it but you don't really need to do it this way and that night that idea that paradox was new <laughs> and I love the steps I love I love that that it's basically it's about improving your mental health it's about the twelve steps are about coming into consciousness basically hmm. in an internal way with yourself and an external way with the people around you hmm. I just think it's glorious yeah. so that's my plug for AA what do you guys think of AA and do you think it is necessary to have AA as a part of your life to get sober. And I am agnostic about that particular question. Mm. I love AA. I'm like unapologetically 12-step based. It's I'm working in treatment centers for the last 11 years. It's not always the most in fashion thing to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's new treatment that becomes available and the new modalities. And um, there's been articles recently of a is evidence-based mm-hmm. you know it's actually one of the most reliable forms of treatment for, for oh, is that right yeah okay so i i work with this topic a lot with young adults and it's yeah. if you need community mm-hmm. and you need a new set of friends mm-hmm. you need to continue <laughs> to work on yourself mm-hmm. and, and be sort of diligent about mm-hmm. your mental health and, mm-hmm. and what you're focused on and who you're going to be today and have mm-hmm. help with that and tap into this deeper power where is the easiest place to do that it's aa yeah there's thousands of meetings in metropolitan areas there are people most like you you can try to go to church or meditation or Mm -hmm. men's group or Mm -hmm. or all these things but Mm -hmm. i promise you you're going to relate more to the people in aa than you would there Mm -hmm. and if you don't like one meeting you can go to another meeting and find a completely different different. group of people yeah Yeah. so i think it's sort of ubiquitous it's it's ever present it's one of the blessings and curses of aa is that it's totally unregulated so you can have a really terrible experience in aa Mm -hmm. and down the street there's like the most amazing (laughs) meeting of all time yeah 
And so it's a crapshoot. So it takes, you know, hopefully sort of this word of mouth referral network of, oh, my girlfriend's dad has been sober for 30 years. It's better to get the referral to a meeting and a person to talk to from that person, maybe mm-hmm. if you can, if, mm-hmm. if that exists. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's the best place for people to develop that new life. Not that you can't do it anywhere else or that mm-hmm. it's the only way, mm-hmm. but it's certainly you know, the most popular <laughs> at this point. Danny, what do you think of it? Yeah, not necessary, but definitely the easiest, like Brad talked about. And I think that the key there was people find a whole lot of people, love them or hate them, that have shared that same journey. They've yeah. been exactly where you've been. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent personally spent years and years listening or acting like I was listening to magistrates and cops and nurses and all these people try to tell me to stop drinking or mm-hmm. to what I should do about it. And they, I knew that they didn't fundamentally understand how I felt right. and where I was and like the, you know, the darkness that I felt yeah. creeping in all the time. And mm-hmm. in AA, people do find that. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of enjoy arguing with people about AA because I'm like, look, it's so I'm so you're telling me there's this thing there, are these people, it's free and there's people there who want to help you and call you and ask you how you're doing and be your friend. And uh, there'll be like barbecues and camping trips and things that aren't going to involve alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So you you can redo like the, the hardest one of the, the hardest thing about getting sober. Maybe you guys want to disagree with this is is changing the infrastructure of your life because a lot of people who drink their friends for years, their jobs, their everything, everything they know is around alcohol. And, and like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You're going to go to a meeting and you're going to meet 500 people yeah. who have all the infrastructure and sometimes a job for you. And that's not going to involve drinking. And people are going to be telling stories that will remind you of yourself and remind you not to drink. Mm-hmm. Oh, but but they're all Jesus freaks. Some of them. And who cares? Like I have a, a one of this one genius that I know, and he said, Ben, the the reason whatever the complaint somebody has about AA, whatever it is, is the very reason that they need to go. Mm-hmm. If they're not into God, if they're not into the spiritual thing, it means that they're have they're having a spiritual issue and they need to learn to connect with something higher than themselves. I love that. And surrender. Yeah. If they don't like the idea that there's dogma, it means they need structure in their lives. If they I could go down the list. Mm-hmm. If they right. are like I don't like being around lots of people, I'm, then that's why you drink, right? Yeah. Because you can't stand being around people. Oh, mm-hmm. you think of it. And it's like yeah. there's so it's such a large entree. And it's free and like you said, Brad, ubiquitous. It's all over the planet. I met a guy on the plane who was trying to start it in Nigeria. God bless you, sir, wow, wherever wow. you are. And he was yeah. he was having a hard time getting it to take because of the stigma, but God bless him. Mm. You know, if you think AA is is a bad thing, I, I think you're an asshole, honestly. I really do. I'm just gonna say <laughs> yeah. that if, like it may not be for you, it's ridiculous. Yeah. One of the uh, most beautiful things, especially now, 11 years sober and uh, having my own worldview change multiple times in my own in my recovery. Some of the traditions speak to diversity is one of the most important aspects of AA, that there is no dogma, that there is no right way to do things, that we thrive on each member's opinions as part of the group conscience. And, you know, there's religious undertones of all those things. But I think the, there's a tradition that reads, you don't need to believe anything, pay anything, or do anything to be here. You're a member when you say you are. And, and so that's something I've really tried to protect and be loud about is mm-hmm. I'm an atheist on a bad day, an agnostic on a good day, mm-hmm. if I'm being humble or not, mm-hmm. uh, intellectually. And it's something that I try not to 
be sort of a Sam Harris and yeah. be annoying about it. But, <laughs> you know, say, hey, like I thought I couldn't come to AA again when this is the most special place in the yeah. world for a guy like me. Yeah. I don't want anyone to be precluded from that yeah. opportunity because they think I don't fit because I don't believe in God. Right. What's really in fashion is to say that the opposite of, of addiction is connection. And mm-hmm. I hate saying that, but because <laughs> uh, it's true, but I'm tired of hearing about it. <laughs> but because it, 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 what, what, what our culture is missing is connection. Well, I'm not going to get into what everyone knows this is true. Yeah. We're missing connection. You go to the meetings and everybody is just so goddamn decent. They're just so goddamn nice. Why would you pass up something like that? Even at a bad meeting, there's this common. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even if it's a room full of assholes, at least yeah. they're all assholes together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you, sober and there for you. They so, showed up. Someone, someone unlocked yeah. the door. Yeah. That asshole is there for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I would love to hear as much or as little of your personal stories and or your ideas about living in life as a way of just being awesome and also letting the world know who they're going to get if they call Danny or Brad mm. as for a sober mm-hmm. coach, who are they getting? Um, let the world know who you guys are. Let's hear your, let's hear it. Who would like to go first? Both of us could probably speak for an hour on this topic. Yeah. Well, so it's a- anybody with half a brain <laughs> could probably do that. Yeah. Talk about yourself. It's the best subject yeah. in the world, man. Yeah. Who doesn't like talking about themselves? I'll try to keep it concise. I'm 29. I grew up in Orange County. I'm the first person in my family to get sober. And my mom got sober nine months after I did. So oh, wow. The geneogram was wrong the first time I wrote it. Geneogram's a kind of family tree of alcoholism and mental health where you can see, hey, like, oh, this, this, I might not have full power over this because it's genetic or mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. in our family system. Come to find out, you know, my dad's a heavy drinker, his mm-hmm. twin brother's a heavy drinker, my mm-hmm. mom's, uh, my mom's brother is, is a heavy drinker, kind of this, this uh, uh, fine line between alcoholic and heavy drinker, kind of an affluent. A safe public school upbringing in Irvine, one of the safest cities in the country. Started drinking and using when I was a freshman in high school. Found a total home in substances and, and an identity in substances. Went to treatment when I was 17, and I've been sober since. I went to community college, thought uh, sitting in treatment, if I go to, say, USC, mm-hmm. I'm going to probably die in my freshman year. How much were you drinking? Uh, I didn't drink a, a ton. I was using opiates, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 80 grams of Oxycontin a day or a gram of heroin a day. Jesus. And then one to five Xanax, two milligram bars. Mm-hmm. To give um, people an idea, a typical Oxy is like what, 10 milligrams? What's yeah. That? I mean, they, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, <laughs> yes, but yeah, yeah, I think, you know, five to 10 milligrams is sort of a more appropriate dose. So yeah, okay. eight times that roughly a lot yeah Um, and sometimes 160 i'd have two of those things oh boy um you know love to check out i love downers i wasn't big big upper guy and i went to community college instead of going to four-year university to protect my recovery kind of made that sacrifice um i ended up understanding sort of my interests so much better than if i just like got the business degree at usc Mm -hmm. straight from high school like Mm -hmm. i planned to and Mm -hmm. it was expected of me I think there's a, a cool part of recovery revealing someone to themselves and they can break away from expectations that family members and society has placed on them. So I ended up studying philosophy and religious studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
as an atheist. Um, I found it extremely interesting and the anthropology and sociology of religion is this fascinating and the conceits of secularism, you know, are also a, a really big interest of mine. The mm-hmm. things we've missed out on thinking that we're progressing, what don't we have? Mm-hmm. Um, what have we sacrificed through that process? I've moved up here to the Bay Area since 2014. I went to school at Cal Berkeley and studied rhetoric and religious studies there. Staying sober throughout college made it unbelievable, rich, fascinating time of my life um, that I hope you know all my young adults have that sort of engagement with their life because of their recovery. Since then, I, I was working in treatment centers basically after I graduated. I was able to post on social media and call other alumni and um, you know, show up and sort of put the pizza out at, on Thursdays for our alumni meeting, mm-hmm. um, any odd job to keep me away from, you know, working behind a cash register. And that grew to running groups as a mentor and then grew into business development and outreach and admissions roles in treatment centers, um, which led me to travel around the country, developing partnerships and alliances and touring programs and seeing what resources were available for kind of every demographic of person struggling. Since 2019, I've been doing coaching and case management, at mm-hmm. least part-time, since August 1st, full-time again. Uh, anything else you wanted to add about yourself? Yeah, one one of the first things professionally I did or, or outside of like 12-step work directly um, was I started a nonprofit that brings recovery support services to music festivals, both backstage and oh, really? sort of in general admission. Yeah. What's it called? The parent company is called Harmonium. And then each festival brands it with their own branding. So like Outside Lands is Soberlands and Lollapalooza is Soberpalooza and Governor's Ball is Soberball. And, oh, wow. Do you still um, run that? No. So I, I stepped away from that. Oh, I yeah. Seeing live music was a really important part of my life, which naturally led me to kind of blend my recovery interest and love for live music. Unfortunately, when you're working in your hobby, sometimes it can cease to become your hobby. Um, So I stepped away from that a couple years in Uh once we were at maybe 20 or 30 events annually. And it's continued to grow since I've been gone. What kind of hobbies do you have? Are you a musician? No, I see the band Fish five to 20 times a year, which is pretty embarrassing. (laughs) Um, That's so cool. Uh, I ski maybe 20 days a year. I love to play golf. Those are some of the, the highlights. Why do you like fish so much? I mean, oh, fish is fine. This I is guess. the toughest question of the interview. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, so I'm actually not the most like musical person. I think musicians can often like fish and for very different reasons than me. It's really the only music I know how to dance to. I find that I like really don't know how to dance listening to any other type of music besides jam bands. <laughs> Because there's no right way. So there's complete freedom. Mm. And then there's one of the things about seeing fish is it's sort of the backdrop to another trip. Like recently we went to Alpine Valley outside of Milwaukee. So here are three guys in their 30s eating hamburgers and custard Mm -hmm. during the day and like going, oh, let's go to the museum and let's check out this. And why else would you end up in Milwaukee for three days? Besides if you're like on fish tour. Mm-hmm. So there's this a lot of fun that comes from it, okay. like outside of seeing music. One of the other things I'd mention is the first, I've never saw fish while I was loaded. I was sober at my first fish show. So oh, okay, interesting. there's probably a hundred to 200 sober people at every mm-hmm. fish show that have, and other jam bands too, 
where there's a meeting at step break and oddly enough a kind of one of my stronger groups of recovery friends is uh, you know this group of people that sees fish you know five ten twenty thirty times a year wow but yes it's extremely embarrassing and i don't think it's i think it's awesome it's you do uh listen to the grateful dead uh, yeah a little bit a little bit I'm surprised. You know, I was born in 1993. If I saw Jerry, I'd like. I'm sure I'd love the Grateful Dead, but I just too I, too little, too late. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> he did. He did die, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, Bummer. Right here in you know Lagunitas. Apparently, my mother gave his wife a harp lesson once. Wow. My mom's a harp, a harp player. Oh, that's just, cool. Yeah. Um, that's my. That's my. That's dumb, but it's true. <laughs> good story. It's appropriate. appropriate. <laughs> Add that right there. Yeah. Why not? It felt good. I feel, I feel better now. Uh, Danny, what's your deal? Yeah, I'm. We're doing ages. I'm 37 today. It's my birthday. Congratulations! Yeah. You made it to Happy 37. Good to be here with you. Where else would I rather be? You're, congratulations! You're old. That's right. I feel you're younger. Late thirst, you're late 30s. I feel younger than I've ever felt. I'm. I'm not kidding. When really? I say that. Yeah, man. The better I get, the the younger I feel. I was born really old, which is good. It brings us to the beginning of the story. <laughs> my, my parents met in a treatment center in Akron, Ohio, which is, you know, ironically where AA started. So you have like a reverse, like a reverse receding hairline, like you were born. With yeah, Benjamin Button. Just- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Can you see it? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, there's, yeah, there's maybe a little bit more than there was last time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So check in with me Happy in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, my, you know, I had the, I didn't do the, the geneogram, but my, my parents met in a treatment center and fell in love right away, apparently and and nine months later i came your parents met in treatment in a treatment center yeah and And like conceived you in a treatment center uh i don't know the exact i wasn't there i just (laughs) no they did because people hook up a lot in treatment it was yeah because yeah it, there's a real good chance that it happened that way. Because right? I think lots of people are conceived in treatment. People didn't have actually. a lot going on. I think that yeah. Well, I mean, it's just it's just what you do. Yeah. You know, you go to treatment and you have sex. Yeah. What anyway, a, those poor kids. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> a, is that an endor- Is that a plug for treatment? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's not. You start it's, to feel yeah. better. It's just I just like it's it, sixty a month, but you're gonna get laid. You're gonna get laid. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, what do they say in AA? The odds are good, but the goods are odd. That's right. <laughs> you, know, you know your stuff. Man. I do. You do. Yeah, I absolutely. like this. It's like it's kind of refreshing too to meet a professional like you that is a fan and an ally in the mm-hmm. way you are. Because I, I got to say, it's not in my experience been that common. So really? It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. it's and, really and, a relief. Yeah, therapists that are in AA themselves are often obviously like you know can be pro twelve step, but yeah. for someone that's not in the program, it's amazing to hear your perspective yeah. oh thank you and i'll agree we'll plug uh anna lemke too is there's one of these other allies i've heard that is, she's an amazing psychologist out of stanford and mm-hmm. when i heard her speak i was like she has to be you right. know, part of the club right. and yeah. and she's not and speaks really favorably about AA. Yeah. so right. right thank you guys sure yeah and you know you can kind of imagine the scene that would follow which is a super alcoholic home and all of the, you know, all of the violence and yelling that kind of comes with that and came with it for me, what was there, which I, I wouldn't know until well into my sobriety and start to figure out how to uncover. It was like f- fraught with abandonment, criticism, neglect, um, mm-hmm. just like crazy emotional, like sabotage basically. Mm-hmm. And it really set the stage, man. It was, I was uh, a scream looking for a mouth, like my buddy likes to say. Mm-hmm. And when I was 12 or 13, started drinking and had a voice you know had an opinion had a voice a scream looking for a mouth scream looking for a mouth Ooh, that's a yeah. good one my buddy tim my buddy tim t talks He's a about poet. that yeah i don't mean he probably stole it but <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> we steal everything but 
but yeah, I mean that, and that's what started it. And I, um, extremely uncomfortable at a really young age and found that thing and uh needed a, a way out and so i was just drinking all the time uh, in a short period probably by 16 i was using iv drugs and by 18 i got sober oh, so wow. yeah so it kind of paints the picture i mean from 16 to 18 it was like so you have you have a lot of years under your i got well yeah just, there's the math I'm, today's the birthday and i was i was 18 when i got sober so right yeah in december 2003 so extremely fortunate um because i was certain this wasn't for me and that i didn't have a problem and mm -hmm. everything else and i i probably stole all these books you have i probably stole from barnes and noble trying to <laughs> figure out what was wrong with me before well, those, I got those books is not what someone needs I got, right i got these he's pointing to all these pithy books like the four agreements and yeah joseph campbell joseph i had campbell that power myth i had all of it which is about as useful to an alcoholic <laughs> as a, yeah. a big pile of dog poop i was <laughs> i was looking everywhere <laughs> I was looking everywhere and I would at that time I was in meetings because I was court ordered and uh, mm -hmm. I'd have to go to get a court card signed yeah and I'd be in there loaded and you know mm -hmm. skimming like be here now trying to figure out what was wrong with me <laughs> and it was just be you know now is a meditative book by Ram Das. yeah I love these annotations <laughs> so, good. Um, so so that's what you know I was looking everywhere but at the thing that I needed to look at which was so blinding um, yeah. to everyone that would be in any kind of any kind of radius of me sure and, yeah and that was i was i was fortunate you know i had this thing that brad already mentioned which yeah. is i started to get extremely close to the decision that there was to be made which was like there's there's no way i can drink like a normal person mm -hmm. i only want to drink at one speed and that speed is completely unsustainable like i'm gonna die soon and uh mm -hmm. which is a powerful message to cut through the the denial of the the drug addict or the alcoholic but mm -hmm. i started to sort of see that and i'll spare you all of the stories but it was just every hour of every day it was just mayhem and yeah. you know i'm sure and what have you been it. doing since you got sober coaching you know in one fashion or the other uh -huh. and then you know every i've had every job under the sun too yeah. so i've explored all these places but you know my life is like the water that i swim in is this it's working with people yeah seeing them get well trying yeah. to give away what's been given to me and then trying to have a full life in the meantime and yeah. doing jujitsu and camping that's and right riding mountain bikes. that's right he does yeah. jujitsu yeah you used to train at your school what belt are you again i'm a blue belt all right uh, under yeah. gilbert yeah uh, down at el nino shout out el nino you and I. I trained this morning yeah i'd love to I, man i trained with four black belts in a row because it makes wow. me feel awesome to say that well you have to that's your job <laughs> You've been doing it since it started. I since, think, since, so. since before yeah. jujitsu was jujitsu, <laughs> yeah. I was way before it was cool. Way before so, it was cool. Yeah, I was cool before I was cool. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I hear that you're also uh, you play chess. I do, and I heard you're good. Who told you that? It's what people are talking about. It's like the people on the street yeah. they talk about. You have me? a huge Reddit. I don't they, know if you know that I do. There's a thread. <laughs> there's a subreddit for Ben Rossick. Yeah, just tell me what to do. Reddit. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, man. I, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, cool. I play a lot of chess. Uh, you play chess? Uh, barely. Barely. Yeah, well, barely. If you want to know more, yeah. I can show you some of the ropes. Oh, okay. Yeah. You should come to Health sometime. I'm, I'm down. Yeah. Do you guys do an open mat, like a Sunday or anything? Now, uh, we're, talking, now we're talking about jujitsu. We can like talk this. about whatever the fuck we want to talk yeah. about. It's a fucking, fucking podcast. I like it. Um, uh, we do... Um, do you do Sundays at all? I think there's a Sunday crew. I don't go. They used to do a Sunday. Um, you can really come any day. And yeah. no one's gonna like if you if I'm there. Yeah. 
Of they'll just come in. Hey, this is my buddy Danny. Oh, yeah, sign a waiver. And yeah, I, just come train. No one's. I still have a house ski. I'm pretty sure. Just come train. Yeah. No, no one's going to care. It's a huge school. They're yeah. really relaxed. You know, I also train at Empire sometimes on Sundays in the Mission. Nice. Uh, that's a good school if you want to go visit. Yeah. Uh, Jake Scoville is a, a jujitsu demigod. Mm-hmm. I see him compete. For he sure. shouldn't. He's not human. Yeah. I don't know what, yeah. how he moves the way he does. It's really, it shouldn't be real. He's got that chip on his shoulder too when you watch him roll, man. He's serious. He's it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome to watch. Yeah, he is. he's a force of nature. Yeah. Is there any other topic that you guys, we've been at it for about an hour and 25 minutes. So you guys, like- There's one thing, but I don't know how to fold it in, Just- which is this um, something that's come up a bunch and something that I work with all my clients motivational interviewing almost into this like stage psychological stage which is erickson's last stage of integrity versus despair i was getting my nose pierced here in san francisco actually when i was 22 or something Mm -hmm. i was talking about recovery and, and how you work the steps and make amends and try to help others and talked also about my sort of near death experiences you know being addicted to opiates and benzos and he said oh it sounds a lot like this end of life choice of integrity versus despair that Erickson talks about. It's one of the things that which stuck is what? with me, which is as someone's laying on their deathbed or, or facing their mortality, they have this opportunity and, and final kind of stage of life to say, Hey, am I going to be a victim to all these people that have hurt me, that I've been wronged by, that I've wronged? Am I going to continue to sort of bristle up against that? Or am I going to forgive and move beyond it and share some wisdom with my family Mm -hmm. am i going to not let them in the room so this anonymous piercer was like oh you've had that stage of life moved up and Mm. so you've had the second birth from dying (laughs) as a drug addict that's great to Mm -hmm. live in integrity and not be a victim and not despair and and step into this authenticity and, and power and it's something that without that near-death experience i don't see people be prompted to do yeah my sister i hope she'll not mind me saying this had um, a couple miscarriages Mm -hmm. and through that experience also i feel like was faced with the integrity versus despair choice Mm -hmm. and she was i don't know 30 to 32 when when she was experiencing those things not in recovery but faced with severe trauma and severe pain you know, there was a depth that was created and, and a choice to live differently. So I don't know where we fold. <laughs> well, you're talking so. about death, which is an ending, which is a, we're, we're ending the, the show here. Mm-hmm. We're ending the t- thing. So that's a, I'm just going to include it that's as you point. said it, because I think that it, it fits naturally in it that, uh, you know, hopefully somebody out there will listen to this and <laughs> be helped by it and decide to get sober. So for those of you listening, I'm going to include all of these the fo- these folks' contact information in the podcast notes. Uh, if someone were to call you, Brad, just give us a real end of show thing. What kind of problems uh, would they have? What kind of questions could you answer if they if if they were to pick up the phone and give you a ring? The short list is: Do I need to go to treatment? Mm-hmm. And kind of doing a brief assessment of, mm-hmm. of what level of care you would need if. if- you're in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. uh, Ben or myself can make referrals to therapists, psychiatrists, treatment centers. Mm-hmm. If you're a family member of someone that's struggling, uh, I can help how to have those initial conversations with someone. Also do some assessments of, of what's needed. If you're calling yourself for a drug or alcohol related issue, you know, we can assist with all the things we've talked about today, which are, you know, how do I 
go to AA? What is AA? What is treatment? How do I live comfortably if I don't have that Mm -hmm. crutch or substance? And you don't have to do it alone. I think for anyone listening, all the myself, Ben, Danny, treatment centers, therapists, there's so much help. Like you don't need to live in isolation struggling with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you could search AA.com or NA.com or. Mm call the nearest treatment center and, mm-hmm. you know, have support. So yeah, we, we do, you know, a little bit more handholding and focus on, you know, young adults. And if you've related to any part of our stories, you know, obviously there's like a secondary level of um, identification that can be helpful, mm-hmm. but yeah, just navigating how to, you know, get sober or go to treatment. Yeah. Start to live a little different. All right. Well said. Yeah. All right. Great. I think we're wrapped. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, man. All right. That was great, man. Thanks for listening, folks. The contact information for Brad Waldo and Danny are in the program notes. If you have any questions and you want to call them and ask them anything about addiction, they will tell you they know as much or more about it as I do. I can tell you that. And if you want to contact me, you know, you can shoot me an email. At any rate, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next one.